Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the weekly podcast that explores the nooks and crannies of living in a body. Sometimes it's the two of us having a casual conversation through the filter of that day's topic, and other times we have special guests who add their voices to the chat. We are yoga educators and body workers with decades of experience as practitioners and teachers. It is with reverence and joy that we choose to take these conversations off the mat and into the microphone. Our aim is to understand the human experience through the stories our bodies hold and the stories they tell. Since having a body is the one thing we all have in common, it seems like a good place to start. We are your hosts. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. And I'm Sherry Sadoff Hank. Join us on this journey of discovery as we sleuth our way to the connections of our individual tales to the collective experience of being alive. We're sort of three quarters of the way through camp right now. And on Sunday we met and we did a a very sort of quiet, I shouldn't say quiet. We operated our day in silence, meaning we didn't speak. This is going to bring up the bigger question, what is silence? (laughs) And how do we, you know, navigate the noise? I know there's just so many layers to that. So today is kind of a nice day here in Pennsylvania, for me anyway, because I like it warm. So all my windows are open. Hopefully, maybe if there's any, like, underlying sounds that are coming through, they're the sounds of the birds and you know, maybe some kids playing or nature outside and not the uh, jackhammer that I heard earlier, which might mean I have to get up (laughs) and um, close some windows. But you and I talked about silence and kind of the contributors to what silence really is, those undertones and, and contributors like the bird song. So this whole time until now, I've had my headphones on, but they were not connected into the computer. And it took <laughs> until this moment. We've been talking now. I mean, even before we hit record, we've been talking for five, 10 minutes. And I just assumed that the sound <laughs> was coming through my ears, the headphones, but not at all. It was coming through the computer. So I don't know if you heard a difference. So the noise in my life, in my head in that moment, was the distraction of what the hell just happened? <laughs> You know, it wasn't so much a sound as it was uh, uh, just a moment. Maybe it was an awakening. (laughs) An awakening to presence. Right? Oh, my gosh. Or a reminder that I was not present in that moment. And how many moments in the day do do we think that we are fully engaged? Do we think that we're interacting with people? Do we think that we are fully present when we're really just, oh, shit, I forgot to do that? Or am I, am I here? Or just the illusion of, you know, whatever's around us. I'm thinking of the illusion of sound right now. <laughs> or, you know, the illusion of intention or mindfulness. Like, am I present? It is not an unusual event around here that maybe I'll start cleaning. And as I clean, I will pick up things from my living room that belong in the bedroom. And as I bring them into the bedroom and put them down, I notice, oh, man, I didn't make my bed yet today. So now I walk away from the cleaning of the living room and I'm making my bed in my bedroom, starting a job over there. But all of a sudden I'm thinking, man, I'm a little bit hungry. And I go into the kitchen to get some fruit and notice that I, you know, the dishes still need to get done. And now I've got like three different jobs going at the same time. And this kind of bouncing from place to place without really any mindful (laughs) specificity, except being completely distracted by all of the little things that capture my attention. And when you were saying that, I just imagined you as like this little bouncing section ball, like the proprioception that moved you through the space where you kind of organically moved into the kitchen, noticing whatever, and then moving. But then the interoception piece of being hungry, of recognizing the (laughs) hunger piece, which moved your body into the kitchen. So all of these conversations we're having, I just have to say, have have had such an incredible impact on my daily thinking, on my daily moving. You know, it's these are not new concepts, you know, and often we'll we'll throw things around and we'll sort of, you know, recycle old ideas and not I shouldn't say old ideas, but ideas that require re-examination over time because 
anything can become stale, even the way we think about things. And so I'm just so grateful to have these conversations so that these these things that matter, that that take up our existence, that, you know, fill our time on this planet, which is arguably so short. And no matter how long we live, it's still too short that there can be meaning. This this recycling thing is not just about plastic cups and straws and stuff. Recycling. You know, I just moved, you know, so I may have talked about this before, but in moving this time, you mentioned recycling and the mindfulness. And, you know, I've mentioned once or twice, I'm pretty sure that I love being outside and in nature. And this awareness, you know, I have a space at Lake Van Skyver, which is over by Penn Warner, which in case anybody doesn't know what Penn Warner is, that's where our trash goes. So, but there's a quarry in the same space that has been flooded and now is this beautiful lake filled with birds and wildlife. There's foxes that come through. Maybe we see a deer. There's an abundance of gophers. Maybe uh, the turtles birthing in the lake always capture my attention. And the snakes still make me squeal when I see them (laughs) and want to get out of their way. But what really happened being there when you talked about recycle, it just opened this whole file cabinet of knowing that I have to decide where to put my attention. And at Lake Van Skyver, you can either see an abundance of trash trucks, which are carrying our garbage and finding a place to dump them and bury them. Or you can turn your head just a little bit and see this beautiful sunset with the eagle soaring over the lake and the heron eating on the bank, you know, just patiently and mindfully looking to watch that fish go by that it can catch in its mouth. And so as I moved, these visions of how we recycle and how we manage the things that we use and the impact on the earth, let me find all of these beautiful treasures that other people no longer needed to use. Like the desk I'm sitting at right now has a story of the family that used it before me. And my dresser, I literally found on the side of the road with a sign that said free on it. And then I sanded it and painted it and loved it to death. And beautiful. It's so beautiful. (laughs) And here it is. So, you know, this, what you said, that the conversations of mindfulness and awareness and And taking the time to step back and observe our surroundings um, are definitely way beyond the conversations and into a lifestyle of a neighborhood I love to live in. Yes. You just brought up the Grateful Dead lyric, one man gathers what another man spills. And, you know, we were talking earlier about this idea of mindfulness and meditation, you know, in the mindfulness in the actual formal mindfulness meditation instruction, you know, we take our seat, we place our attention on our breath. And then when we notice that our mind has wandered, we label that thought thinking and we return to the breath. So we had this whole conversation the other day about this idea of return, you know, that maybe that mindfulness and meditation is not so much about, you know, we know it's not about eradicating thought or becoming mindless or, you know, any of that. But that this idea of return, that this awareness, this mindfulness that we have wandered. So I'm sitting in my own mind palace in my own sort of listening to you talk about the lake and what we choose to see. So we can choose to look at the landfill, which I find amazing that there is no smell there. It doesn't smell like there's garbage. It doesn't, you know, but there are mountains that are landfill that are around this lake. So If on the one hand, we can choose to look away from that toward the lake and see just those natural, beautiful, the eagle soaring and all of that, we can also look at the landfill as something beautiful as well. You know, that it doesn't just have to be where they put our trash. You know, this is stuff that we have consciously or unconsciously discarded that is sort of seen as, I'm doing loose quotes, as waste. And so what we've done, we've had to sort of be resourceful and how do we, there's so many of us now and these mountains of trash, but they are mountains. And what is it that we love about a mountain that is, you know, that is growing and there's, there's something that we can see that's beautiful. And then in that moment, when we recognize that it's a mountain of trash and whatever that may, you know, sort of evoke within us or invoke, you know, 
invoke evoke this could be a ubiquitous moment i'm not exactly sure right <laughs> well I, I i'm a wordsmith like but so you know ubiquitous i could do but you know invoke and evoke which is coming in which is going out anyway but then we can have that choice to return to recognize what we're looking at however it's landing it can be beautiful it could be gross it could be whatever that that you know delineation is that we put on that judgment or that observation but then when we choose to kind of look somewhere else you know what is it that we're returning to are we returning to the landfill are we returning to the lake and what is the discernible difference you know so in the meditation in the formal part when our mind wanders we know because the object of that meditation is the breath so when we're no longer focused on the breath we and we're able to recognize that, then we can return to the breath. In our lives, it's sometimes, you know, more, it's more blurry. It's blurrier mm. to see what is it that we're returning to? What is it that we're distracted from? So unless we have a very clear object of focus, you know, maybe the object of focus is to be able to see the beauty in the world around us as it is without trying to change it, but meeting it and then, you know, so what is the return? This, these are not, what, what, these conversations are exploration. So I don't have any freaking answers. You know, I just, I have a ton of curiosity and, you know, moving through the world, having that conscious moment of, of return. You know, maybe it's part of our hero's journey too, that return piece. Oh. <laughs> I opened a door to you, man. You sure did. <laughs> opening a door, right? So, you know, I guess being at the lake, being in nature, being on the farm for all of these times of camp, it feels like a returning to our foundation, a returning to, you know, our roots, really, of, you know, with the recognition that that nature that we're talking about and what we're focusing on, it doesn't matter which of the different things we've talked about we're focusing on. They're all made up of the same thing, right? Whether it's our garbage, the things that no longer serve us, or the food that we put into our body to extract the things that no longer serve us, we are all made of the same elements. We are connected in such a way that it reminds me of signs that you see if you go out camping or walking around or into one of our national parks, or one that I'd like to plaster all over the neighborhood which is leave no trace, right? Leave no trace. And there is, I don't know that we will ever not have things that no longer serve us and not have, you know, trash that needs to find a place to go. But we can maybe, or I can maybe, I'll just say me and anybody else who wants to jump on the boat, I can do a better job, like collecting my compost and bringing it to the farm on Sundays when I come to camp and leaving it in their compost pile, which I love to do, or, you know, making choices to buy cardboard and biodegradable papers instead of plastic. You know, the leave no trace is about the things that no longer serve us in our mind and our body and our spirit. You know, our body is perfect at making some choices about what we put into it and what it holds on to and what winds up leaving at the other end. And maybe with that same focus and awareness, we could take that beyond our body and into our neighborhood and leave no trace. And into our stories. You know, last week, or not this past Sunday, but when we were telling our stories, and I know that you had mentioned the instruction to, if you're telling a story that you've told over and over again, find a different way to tell it. And it's not just about finding the synonyms that will tell the same story, but maybe with a different, you know, edge or flavor or whatever, but it's about retelling the story, recycling the story, recognizing what no longer serves you in the way that you've told the story over and over again, and really taking the time to revisit the memory or the story so that you can see how it lands today. And, you know, it's not about revisionist history. It's about recognizing how we evolve, how we change, how what serves us and no longer serves us changes over time. And so while like when you were saying the story that you had told during A, during anecdotes at camp, but that the story that happened when you're nine or 10 years old, 
that you don't change the facts of the story. You know, what are the actual things that happen? Yeah. Not the responses or, you know, what we think we may have said in that moment. But your dad got the donuts. There were 12. We know there were 12 and there were 10 people. Those are facts. But the way that you told the story about how you responded to your siblings and what happened after all those becauses, those are the things that we get to examine over time and say, oh, well, today at 54 years of age, this is how I might respond. And this is what I might tell my nine-year-old version of myself. And this is how we get to heal in the space between the activity and now. Regardless of how much time has passed, it could be a day and that might be enough perspective for that time. But the longer time goes, the more we grow, the more we you know, interact with all the different stimuli in our lives, um, mm -hmm. that shit changes. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation I had about showing up to our younger self to find these things, that, that story, any story that we might have that we tell over and over again that has had some influence on us. And it can be influenced in any, in any emotion that you want. It can be something that influenced motivation or happiness, pure joy, sadness, fear, anger. There's just so many different stories we have that maybe we tell ourselves over and over and over again that kind of reinforce, for me, reinforce ways that I am programmed to view myself, right? A programmed response that maybe I don't mindfully think about until I'm asked for and asked to think about a specific situation. And then the recognition that the story that I'm telling and the particular story from last episode that you're referring to is the story of a young girl, a child, and her view of a specific situation. And maybe I left feeling unheard Maybe I remember it because that's how the story was told to me after the fact. And there was an implication in the retelling of the story. But to be able to return home, you mentioned earlier the hero's story and returning or remembering what's going on. There's this call to me inside that says, if I felt unheard, Maybe I, as 63-year-old Teresa, I just had my birthday, 63, thank you, 63-year-old Teresa can go back and be there for younger Teresa and say, hey, that's kind of a fun story. Now let's talk about it from the perspective of different ages. Is that the story? Is that the one we want to stick with? And um, it doesn't mean that I am fooling myself, but I'm recognizing that there's different ways at different ages that we can see the same event or even at the same age and interpret it in a different way with a different after the because. So let me throw this at you. If fascia forms and deforms according to request without bias, the same thing with our stories. We have been, and I'll say we, because I've had a, the story of sort of being invisible at certain points of not being remembered, of being forgotten, not so much invisible, but forgotten, that that's a story that I've been telling myself over the years. That's the request I've been making of that particular story. So until I can, you know, with all the facts, yes, they forgot this, but it had nothing to do with me. From my, my perspective as a youngster, I was like, youngster? I must be old. I'm using the word youngster. <laughs> as a kid, as, as a pipsqueak, as a whatever. Uh -huh. I get to request a different story now. I get to reform. I forget the deforming. I'm going to reform myself in the image of the person that I am becoming, not the person that I was so early in the journey before I left home and even had my first hero's journey around whatever experience. Yeah. I'm wondering how many other people have similar stories of maybe feeling unheard, feeling forgotten, or any other story. Like what, as we're, you know, you will tell me a story or I will talk about a story and all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, there's little parts of that that I'm, I can really relate to. You know, they're different stories, but the, the emotion, the sensation, the feeling, I'm like, oh, I can relate to that. So, you know, all of anybody who's listening right now, what stories come up for you while we're talking about our own stories? And can you revisit the story? 
from the age that you are now, looking at the pure facts of the story and then, you know, with an awareness and a mindfulness, notice how you've interpreted it. And is that a story that you want to keep that way? Or as a different age, looking at the same story, can it be thought of, transformed in a different way? And can you show up for your younger self with kindness and compassion? And the story doesn't have to be about being forgotten or invisible. I was the star of the show. You know, I was the one everyone loved the most. You know, I was, it could be, you know, it's, we're not guiding what is the thing that the story is, but, and I know we've sort of tended toward the, the healing part of that journey, but maybe the healing or the recognition of who we thought we were at a time, which you know, could be something very different. And I'm going to make the segue into camp this Sunday by saying that when I was in fourth grade, I started public school. And my story about myself was, even though there's that forgotten piece, I'm, I'm loud. I talk a lot. I'm, I was always getting in trouble for talking. There was no place anyone could put me in the classroom. I think I've told these stories where I wasn't chatty. And that was always in every report card. Sherry's very social. She's very chatty. She's very this. So I'm starting this new school. I'm going to public school. And every day before I go to school, I say to myself, I'm not going to talk today. I'm not going to talk today. I'm not going to, I'm going to be the quiet one. I'm going to be the quiet one. Now understand this is not my nature. This is me trying to be something that I'm not trying to fit in to a place where I may not belong. These two sort of ways of looking at that. And by the time I got to that, you know, first five minutes in class, I had forgotten I'd even said, I'm not talking today because that's not who I am. That's not the thing that drives me, that moves me. I want to talk to people. I want to find shit out. I want to, you know, uh, as I've gotten older, I've been able (laughs) to, you know, have some self-control sometimes. And Teresa's taught me a lot about that as well. And I'm grateful for that. But all of this is to say that we can still operate from our true north, from our true natures in our ways, and add in those things that we think might balance energies that are not serving us. So always getting in trouble for being chatty. Yeah, I can honor that that's who I am. And I can respect the community that I'm in. I can decide that I don't have to talk in this particular moment because someone else is talking or there's a lesson or there's something else where I'm not the only one in the room you know, that it's it's about living in community. So we can honor the authenticity and still show up. And this is what these practices are for. We, sometimes we have to practice them. So Sunday for mindfulness and meditation, because, you know, we talk about that sometimes we conflate the two, that yes, meditation is typically mindful, but mindfulness meditation is its own thing. But we decided to operate the day in relative silence. And relative silence is that we weren't going to speak unless we absolutely had to. Listen, if you have an emergency or something urgent comes up, yes, use your words. But what we learn when we choose to be quiet or silent or not speak or however we want to frame that, that half of the shit we say, we don't really even need to say. You know, if we think about the things that we're putting into the world that you know, there's energy. It's there's there's an exchange of energy that, you know, how much are we putting in and how much are we getting back? But so anyway, so we come together and we're we're not talking, and there's a profundity in that. It's temporary, it's certainly not going to be everyone's nature. Some people like fish to water, you know, silence is that 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 place of refuge within. For other people, it's harder to find refuge in that silence at first, but with practice. I promise you, as someone who's got a noisy inner landscape, it is worth the effort to make those choices to be in relative silence for some time. (laughs) The relative silence reminds me of a retreat to Costa Rica. And mornings were silent until after meditation. And meditation was I think it began at 6.30, might have been 6 a.m., which means we got up pretty early to gather in the place looking out over the Pacific Ocean with a gorgeous view and meditate in community in silence until after meditation. We stayed silent in the mornings until after meditation and after breakfast and just really nourished and nurtured ourselves before we had to interact with others. Well, one night as the retreat kept going on, we all stayed up really late around the infinity pool, 
laughing, getting to know each other, sharing a glass or two of wine. <laughs> and just really had this great evening listening to the sounds of nature, watching the moon reflect off of the Pacific Ocean below and floating in the infinity pool. And the next morning we got up as we did for the previous four days for silent meditation. And each morning as we entered the, the space right before our meditation space, the staff at Anamaya in Costa Rica was kind enough to leave us coffee and tea and fresh coconut milk. And we would all get our little bit of soothing warm drink and maybe a little caffeine <laughs> before we went into meditation. And it was went smoothly until the one morning after we were up really late and we arrived. And for whatever reason, the staff did not leave our coffee, our tea, or our beautifully fresh coconut milk. Whew. And talk about a bunch of yogis who forget to be silent just like that. <laughs> and so sometimes in the middle of being, you know, mindfully present and wanting to stay <laughs> In honoring each other's space, a motivator like no caffeine early in the morning can, um, you know, remind us. It's okay if we break the silence and have a conversation also. It's all a choice. And it's curious. And I, I know you've told this story before. And I, I go back to my Ayurveda teacher, who I only had for a short time up in Wrightstown. And her whole thing was, you know, what's, what's the American mantra? Um, we run on Duncan or whatever the <laughs> America runs on Duncan. And that brought up a whole conversation about caffeine and about, you know, its impact on the body. She was Ayurveda, so that's the Indian science of wellness. So in a yogic community, I'm a coffee drinker. I, I do notice when I choose to go off of coffee, I'm much more alert. I feel better. I love the flavor. I, I just love the smell of it. I love so much. I love the, the sensuality of coffee and I love the ritual of tea. I just, I love it all. But I also know that if I skip, if I have a cup of coffee every day and then I skip a day, I get a headache. So the yogi in me gets really curious. Why am I drinking this thing? I mean, I do a lot of things that are not good for me and I have given up a lot of things that I know are not good for me, but I'm human. So, you know, we're going to have these things in balance. But I think in a situation where you're in a sangha, in a community of people who are sort of directed toward similar I won't say goals, but similar curiosities and paths that that would be, you know, a freaking gold mine for excavating, for, for exploring, for taking a look at, you know, what was it about this substance that was the thing that made me want to break my silence over any other number of choices that it could have been? What was that about? And, and I, I just, it, it, it's curious to me because I keep hearing Maureen's voice saying America runs on Duncan and how that was sort of the jumping off point for the lesson of the day. So for what I, I mean, and that's not about silence, but it is about sort of getting curious about, you know, what are the things that we, that resonate with us and what are the things that, you know, we choose in our lives? Because it's really all about choice. And like, you're always saying, what are the things you're looking at and why are you looking at that? So this is like, why this thing? Yeah. yeah, being curious about what captures our attention. On our walk around the farm, there were so many things that I noticed um, for myself and observed for others. I can't really speak to the other campers' experience, but my viewing of their experience was part of my experience. And noticing that, you know, one of the things that we talked about as we were leaving was we we're going to have a slow, mindful walk. And Sherry, you have already shared, you know, the simple instruction of what that would look like. And to not walk so slow because, you know, we did only have two hours for camp. Not walking too slow is so subjective. And immediately myself and the other campers kind of really dropped into that role of noticing, observing, being aware. I noticed people stopping to separate themselves from the group and look at the chickens that were out eating or stand under a tree and feel the leaves and the, the pines, the, you know, the different types of needles that were there. In the middle of the walk, which was at about 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon, the rooster, 
was crowing. <laughs> cock a doodle do at the middle of the afternoon. And I paused for a minute and thought, well, good morning. And was curious about, you know, what prompted him to kind of join our community, join our neighborhood at that moment and thought, well, maybe, you know, it's the recognition that this walk is also a new beginning. We're starting something new right here. And that was walking and, you know, just with no destination, no real place to go and just opening up to the experience of our senses and all the parts of us that experience each and every moment, our, our sense of smell and taste and touch and what we saw, which were the ones that captured our attention and why. And in addition to my own experience, I was fascinated watching everybody else have their own experience, which in turn was part of my experience. Isn't that awesome? And another thing is sort of in a reflective way, just like that, you brought up Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching on the bell and how that's an opportunity to wake up to the moment that that's, you know, sort of, and he does that with lights as well. And so the rooster was that wake up. It was a sound. It was just like the bell, only not the bell. It was an opportunity though, to wake up. And this also brings me to a story that I have told many times in my life. I haven't told it in a long time. So I'm going to retell it now in a way that I don't think, because when this happened, I was in high school. My brother is about seven and a half, eight years older than I am. And he came home to visit and we went into Philly to, I don't know if we were working at a, a homeless shelter, if we were giving food, I forget exactly what our purpose was, but we ended up at sort of a place where a homeless man walked in and he started, he was running around just going, wake up, wake up. And he was running to everyone with his fist, like, wake up. This is how I remember him in my head with like these big, crazy eyes, wake up. And in my high school self, I was like, fucking crazy, you know, guy, like, what the fuck? Come on, you know, you go wake up. But I mean, that was a total lack of empathy, a total, you know, just sort of judgment and whatever. And I'm making that shit up. I don't even actually remember what my response was to this guy. But over time and over practices, this man, this memory of this man, he's become my guru. He's become the bell that woke me up. He is, even though now I don't, I, I, the bell is his sound of wake up, wake up. It's literal and it's just in my face. I think he knew something. He knew something that most of us don't. And the people that we think may be crazy are actually tapping into, you know, I say crazy very lightly and I say it with, uh, you know, a, a bit of levity. My dad was a forensic psychiatrist. We use all sorts of, you know, words. But anyway, so that what we think might be crazy or off, off kilter, off balance, whatever, is really probably the thing we need to hear the most in that moment. I don't know what I was meant to wake up to in that moment. I didn't know really what was going on. And now as I look back, I even am more confused about what I must have been thinking then. But as my 54-year-old version, like, yeah, man, he, he knew. He got it. He was frustrated. He couldn't get people to see what he saw. And so, you know, whatever his return was, whatever his, his need was in that moment, boom, it was a wake up. It was a rooster. It was a bell. It was all of those things. It's so interesting because that story, the two complement each other so perfectly. Like Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about hearing the bell and knowing that that is a time to pause, to be mindful and to reconnect with that part inside of us. He calls it the, you know, our Buddha nature and then goes on to explain that Buddha isn't an outside force. It's not a deity. It's not a God. It's our innate ability to be awake and be present. And that the bell is our invitation to pause and connect with that part of ourself that is awake and experiencing. And so the gentleman that you're talking about, he has the same message, different delivery, right? He said it in a much more exuberant and excitable way where Thich Nhat Hanh has this calm, and soothing voice and presence about him. But the message was the same. Wake up, like wake up and be present. Be a part of what's going on around us and take the time to pause, notice, 
and be mindful. And right now I'm talking about pausing on a farm in the middle of the growth of flowers and vegetables and abundantly filled with insects and birds and all of the other animals you might find on a farm. But what about waking up in a walk through the city with fast-paced people all around you? Or waking up to notice if you go out and you walk your dog in the morning, how many people do and don't clean up after their dog and or <laughs> themselves, right? How many people leave whatever it is that they were carrying, drinking, smoking, or coming out of their dog in their path? And the converse to that, how many people stop and carry those pieces of stuff that we can let go over to a trash can or to a receptacle or home so that I can have a beautiful mountain of grass-covered trash <laughs> around a beautiful lake <laughs> that I like to float my kayak in. <laughs> so I think this, this does a really nice segue into this idea of you had brought up the other day in the silence that there was a sense potentially you wanted to find out, we didn't get a chance to, of a, a solemnity that, you know, our practices don't have to be so serious. They don't have to be you know, like pausing or being quiet has to be this intense, serious experience. My friend Teddy was at camp and we were jumping through the dried out leaves because we haven't had a whole lot of rain. So leaves are falling early. You know, they're drying out earlier than they normally. These are leaves that we would see the end of August, beginning of September. But middle of July, we're getting, you know, right now we're at the beginning of August. But so, but we've got these leaves. We're jumping in the leaves and we're laughing. So the instruction not to talk didn't mean not to make sound. You know, that this is, again, part of that relative silence is when we can reduce the actual words, because there is, I think, a thing that happens when you're thinking of the words and you're thinking of a narrative or you're just out there gleefully jumping in leaves and laughing and making sound that doesn't require a whole lot of thought. It's, it's almost an organic response to the, the, the experience that that's great. And I've often said, and I love this, that communicating in sound effects is sometimes much more not only enjoyable, but might get the point across a little bit more specifically. You know, sometimes there is no word to go, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need to, or <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, you started talking about there not being a lot of brain and how Teddy and you were like really connecting to the dryness and the sound of the leaves because they were dry, the noticing that they had dropped early, where my experience centered around something completely different. And it was the moisture because it was a, it was still July, right? Yes. It was a, it was a end last of July day. day, the last day of July. It was warm out probably somewhere in the nineties. It was humid. So what I really noticed was the moisture of the air as it touched my skin. And I use that as a point of awareness to try not to judge it or it'd be like, ugh, I'm sweating and all of a sudden go to sweating bad. We don't want to sweat. Instead, I chose to notice what my skin felt like with the humid air touching it. And I found out that I kind of really liked sweating. <laughs> it was cool and it was hydrating and I liked the way it felt on my body. And the other thing was the reminder. I had spent some time in Arizona, sorry, in Nevada this year and last. And I love the desert. It's a beautiful place to visit. But after a little bit of time there, my nose always gets all bloody and stuff because it's too dry. There's not enough moisture. So somewhere in the day, I was just so grateful that with each inhale, there was this high level of humidity that I was able to experience, which led me to notice the, the garden of, uh, that where you can cut your own flowers and the huge sunflowers that bordered it and all of the different colors that were contained within that space. And the field filled with, abundantly filled with tomatoes. They had a cherry tomato picking field where I looked over and whew, 
There are just so many beautiful cherry tomatoes on the vines. So same walk, same weather, same relative experience, but two different mindfulness practices or noticings that we each had. And I will say this, if I were to tell the story when I, and I am telling the story of that day, I don't know that I would have characterized my observation as the, like the dryness. Like, I don't know that I was looking at dryness or humidity or that. It was simply the experience of jumping on the leaves. You know, mm -hmm. it was really just that simple. I didn't dive that deep in that moment. And I love that you do. You always go into those other layers. In the telling of it, you know, I, I that's curious to me. Like, yeah, there is that dryness. Or, yeah, there is that too. But I wouldn't say that's what captured my attention. It was just the crunchy feeling of the leaves and that feeling like you're saying we're practicing youthfulness, that it was just a surrender in that moment to like, oh, there are leaves, let's jump in them. You know, I don't think there was anything more or deeper in my experience. So in my telling of that, that wouldn't come up. But in your perception of it, I love that that's what you offered. It's a little bit after my because, because it wasn't something that I had had considered. But now I will, because I think it's a really a beautiful way to kind of, you know, break it down and have this conversation. Yeah. And my perception of yours telling the story was part of my experience. Mm -hmm. But really, you talked about, you know, me going deep and you were just like, yeah, we just were, were yay playing, mm -hmm. you know? That's that's the thing that I take from you is that, yeah, I do go deep and I look at all of these different things, but sometimes... It's just fun and yay play to just go out and have fun with no agenda, just crunching the leaves, laugh with a friend and move on to the next experience that's coming down, down the road. So yay play. Yay play. Spoiler that's, alert. That's next week. We're going to be having a whole lot of fun. And all of this is to say, all of the things that we, we talk about, all the practices that we offer and all of these conversations that hopefully are, you know, giving pictures and giving, you know, sort of stimulating the senses as it were. But it's just an, an, an invitation, a reminder, you know, maybe a bell, a wake up call that we get to design our own lives. We get to design the neighborhoods we live in. This is a metaphor, obviously, because you move into a neighborhood, there's, you know, only so much we can control. But the things we can control can really allow us to, regardless of circumstances and regardless of, you know, the challenges that we all have challenges, we all have our stories. And yes, some are more extreme than others, but we do have some control over our minds and the way that we approach these challenges. And that's, I think, one of the beauties and benefits of taking time in silence to experience the world from your own space without, you know, feeling like a silence needs to be filled with a conversation. You and I have talked in our planning, and I just want to put it out there right now, since I said the word planning, is that it seems that no matter how much we plan for what we're going to talk about, the experience takes on a life of its own when we come behind the mics to record. <laughs> but that relative silence of being able to really just embrace time in community, in the, in the container of community, in the container of the neighborhood to experience silence and some time and space for our own exploration of that external and the internal environment while we stroll. It reminds me of so many things that I did have in my notes, <laughs> like silence is not empty. It's filled with answers and taking the opportunity to sit, to just experience, to, you know, allow yourself the time and space of quiet. Maybe it's filled with answers, or maybe it's just filled with ambient noise like the farm was that day, the rooster crowing in the background, one of the trails that we went down, as soon as we walked onto the trail, both sides were abundantly lush with bushes and trees. And just five or 10 steps onto this path, it was engulfed in an abundance of sound. The first thing I noticed was the hum of insects, not any particular insect, just that 
soft hum in the background when you know where you are is surrounded by a variety of different insects accented with the bird song and different types of bird song, the slight sound of everybody's feet on the path and a moment to pause because there was a rabbit in front of me and I was first in line on the path and I just kept walking closer and closer and closer to that rabbit. We entered so quietly and just joined the rabbit's space that it stayed with us for much, much longer than I anticipated it to stay still and share that space with us. You know, the sounds that you described are just idyllic. You know, we've got the, the insects and the birds, and there is this feeling of communion with nature. There's this feeling that we are not separate, that we are in the space with nature. We're also by Route 1, where cars are going by, and there's the sound of traffic. So what my curiosity then leads me to, why, why is some music okay in silence, in relative silence or quiet, and other sounds are disruptive and not okay, kind of like the music? Is it music or is it noise? Well, my mother probably would have thought a lot of the music I listened to was noise when I was a teenager. Mine too. <laughs> so, so this question of, of our sound. So we can't always sit or practice our spiritual practices in a space where it is completely quiet. We can try, and it's nice to be able to have that also, like be curious about that. But in the real world, sometimes, you know, the phone is going to ring or you're, you know, the, I, I, I had in my head the old-fashioned phones, but, you know, your phone may ding a few times from texts or, you know, you're going to hear the trash truck outside. When I first studied meditation at the Shambhala Center in New York, it was 1999, 2000-ish. And during my, one of my weekend trainings, the whole entire weekend, there was a jackhammer going off outside. This is New York City. It's, you know, Chelsea. It's, you know, it's loud. But what, what we weren't going to do our training, we weren't going to, you know, work with that. So we work with things as they are. And so someone else might hear that if they're a drummer or some other kind of percussionist, they might hear the jackhammer as an instrument rather than, you know, oh, I have to sit here and listen to that. And where I find this also interesting is that this particular type of mindfulness meditation that we practiced at Chambala, we practiced with our eyes open rather than closed. So this is the reason I'm bringing this up is that one of the reasons, or at least my understanding of why, is one of them, first, so that we're not so distracted when we come out, that when we move from being in the meditation to being back into the world as if they're separate, that there's no jarring difference, that we can access that space even with our eyes open. The other one is that you know, we spend most of our lives, if we're not sleeping, with our eyes open, that this is a sense that draws things in. That in some ways, I feel like I've been conditioned to think that in order to go deeper, I need to close my eye. I think they're different experiences and they're both valuable and I wouldn't discount one over the other, but I also don't think that one is more valuable than the other. And so practicing with my eyes open is more challenging, even though I've gotten to a point where I'm less chatty in my head with my eyes open, I also sometimes prefer to close my eyes and there's work to be done there too. But this idea of not forsaking any of the senses to allowing all of the external stimuli to enter the body through whatever portal or sense is allowing entrance is part of interacting with our world in a present way. So why would we want to push away anything? So when I think about it in that way, and I don't think that closing your eyes pushes things away. I don't mean to imply that. But the implication is that you have a deeper experience when you close your eyes. I would say you be the judge. You know, you decide, but don't decide because of the story you were told. And that is hard work to unwind sometimes. You know, it takes practice and it takes dedication, consistency, and a desire to, to be in that present space. I know personally, sometimes my desire to attach to the story I've always known is really strong. It's a strong hold. And so practice is the thing that allows me to loosen the knots that I have created around these different stories. Ooh. And see, that's a sound. Teresa, you do that sound a lot. And that communicates so much of what you have to say. Words aren't even necessary. When I hear you go, Whew, I know, I fucking know. That, you know. You've just taken something in and you have a, are taking a moment to absorb. And I just think that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful expression. 
I don't even know what to say next. I just, I am just, you know, I never practiced with my eyes closed until, until I started coming to your Monday mindfulness meditation Zooms. And I never really thought of it in terms of going deeper or not going deeper because my eyes were closed. I simply learned how to do it that way and enjoyed the experience. And so when I started practicing with my eyes open and staring and just having the soft gaze and left them as part of the experience, that was a challenge. But it also opened the door for me to make a choice at the beginning of sitting or in the middle of sitting. Sometimes I've got my eyes open and they just naturally and organically close at some time during the meditation without me deciding to do it. But then maybe it was a distraction and awareness that then I had to lead my myself back to a focus point because I noticed, oops, I just came away from my focus point and now I have to return and maybe choose a different focus point and say, now that my eyes are closed, what I was staring at, I'm going to let go of and I'll use my breath or whatever it might be. But the freedom to then make a choice on what my experience is going to be next. Do I want my eyes open? Do I want them closed? You know, do I want to use my breath as my focus of concentration? Or do I want to use a flame that I can stare at? Like there's just so many opportunities Mm -hmm. to be mindful. But as you've taught me and said in the past, to not get stuck in a rootness of feeling like even our mindfulness is just a procedure that we're going through. And I like the, the opportunity to keep it fresh with the amount of choices that are available in the practice. Absolutely. And loosening the grip for me meant also thinking when you are in a deficit of one sense, the other senses, they say, become a little more potent. They become more alive. So there is an argument to be made or a conversation to be had around closing your eyes and eliminating that one sense to aliven other senses. But I think that for me, it's all about like what you just said. It's about being able to make the choice to having the data. So because I first learned to meditate with my eyes open, the first time someone told me to close my eyes, my inner dialogue was, that's wrong, that's wrong. And I don't ever want to have that response to a practice that I have not yet embodied to have that kind of opinion. You know, it's when we choose teachers and we choose our teachers. Now, I have a tendency to fall in love with all of my teachers. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, not the shitty teachers, the ones that I walk away from, but the teachers who I feel have been of value to me, who speak to me, who I resonate with. I have the, I told my husband once, I said, you won't have to worry about me straying because I have this, the experience of falling in love all the time. It's not a romantic falling in love, but it's that feeling of surrender to another person and what they have to offer to see how that that jives with with me, you know. And so sometimes, and I know we all, I don't know, I shouldn't say we all, but I have taken some things that teachers have said as gospel and sort of immediately decided they are, they know more than I do. They've done this longer than I have. They know more than I do. Well, yes, and. You know, I'm going to go back to that old, that model, that old paradigm. Yes, they do. And I also get to decide what works for me. And sometimes it's important to just take it all in without too much, without too much question. But then we have to have that discernment at some point to be able to say, oh, you know what? I just let something else in and this works with me a little bit better than that. So I used to always say to my students, if I give you a cue and give you, guide you to where you might feel it, what you might be feeling. If you feel something different than what I'm saying, guess who's right? You are. (laughs) Because I don't know what it feels like to be in your body. I only know what I know from what I've learned and how I've embodied it. So again, I think as teachers, sometimes we assign an after the because in cues we're giving. Because we think the cues are ubiquitous. (laughs) <laughs> there's sort of a, a sameness that everyone's going to respond to those in the same way <laughs> i love you i love you too and if you don't know why we're laughing so much head over to our facebook page and look at our teaser from uh, monday august 1st and you'll see how funny the word 
ubiquitous. Yes, yay! Look at that. Awesome. <laughs> that might be a good segue for us to to start wrapping up. We're so excited. We're having so much fun at camp, and uh, we're coming into the fourth week, which is yay play. So we're going to have a ton of fun. I can't wait to share that experience with you. And I didn't even mention to Sherry that I wanted to do a little bit of promotion for something else that is coming up. So um, we have talked about fascia a couple of times. <laughs> Just a couple. If you're one of our listeners, you may have heard us mention that word once or twice, but I am going to be hosting a three-part free webinar coming up beginning, uh, it's Tuesday nights from seven to nine, beginning on August 9th. So it's the 9th, the 16th, and the 23rd, and it is Fascia Foundations. This is going to be an experiential dive into understanding fascia by feeling it in your body through movement and exploration, a little bit of chatting, not too much PowerPoint, but maybe a photo or two for you to really understand all of the different functions. So if you've been listening to us uh, and listening to the podcast and you're thinking, what is this fascia thing they keep giving us little tastes of? Go on over to Integrated Natural Health, backsplash, uh, backsplash, there we go, on words again, backsplash, <laughs> uh, Integrated Natural Health upcoming, uh, the upcoming page, and come join me. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun and learn some of the things, so prepare to be fashionated. Whether you're a massage therapist, a body worker, a yogi, somebody who's just really curious about their body, and it's open for everybody. It's going to be fun, informative, and exciting. No matter who you are, knowing more about our body is always fun. Oh, yeah. I bet there are more people out there saying, Fasha, yeah, it forms and deforms according to request without bias. I bet we have more people saying that than has ever been saying that in the history of the world. That's true. And you might also want to know that it is iridescent and beautiful. It glides and it slides. It's hydrating and it communicates with specificity. Uh, the great communicator, the great connector. Come with me. Connect. Let's take this journey together. Crush on Fasha, man. Crush <laughs> on it. That's awesome. I hope to be there too because, you know, I can never learn too much. And it'd be nice to be in that that sort of seat of the student solidly. And together, Anecdotal Anatomy and INH are working on some Kajabi projects. So yes, if you don't make it to the first night, please register anyway. Registration is going to stay open. And I can say there will be recordings that'll be available with the caveat that I have one more piece of hardware and software to learn. <laughs> so if it's not immediate, please be patient, but I won't forget that you were there. Cool. So to, to wrap all of this up for this whole thing of quiet and eyes open, eyes closed, the relative stillness, all of that, I don't really have a practice to offer today. But what I would say is that, you know, when you think about it, if you have some time carved out for, for practice time to, you know, blindfold yourself or close your eyes and eat your lunch. You know, maybe sit outside, close your eyes and feel the breeze. Here I am, close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes. I'm so used to keeping the eyes open. Maybe with a soft gaze, sit outside with eyes closed and then open them. And what do you see? Being quiet in your own head is a hard thing to do. So maybe we start with just shutting our lips, shutting <laughs> them out. Like that might be enough to start. You know, and then slowly just be curious about the nature of your thinking as you move through your day, you know, quietly walking, quietly, you know, listening, quietly tasting, using all of your senses, but with a sense of, with a sense of quietude. Mm -hmm. I believe it is a word, but <laughs> you're a bigger, you're, you're a more proficient wordsmith than I. <laughs> and I also always learning don't necessarily have a practice. But while I was walking at camp, this kept coming into my mind. So I thought I would share it. It's Wendell Berry. And usually, you know, it's Sherry's the writer. And she told me this morning, I can never say I'm not a writer again. So yeah. <laughs> don't, don't cast me in that role. I love to write. I can write. But yeah, you are. It was beautiful writing this morning. Oh. So 
She has some beautiful books on poetry. And usually when I read poetry, it's from one of her books. But this one is from The Piece of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. And it is something I'd like to leave you with. The Piece of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what life, what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lay down where the wood drake rests in the beauty of the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. That's like walking the paths you've walked so many times and seeing things for the first time. I don't think I could hear that piece too many times. And every time there's something different to, to feel, to experience, to, to see. Thank you. My pleasure. In peace. See you soon. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please click the like and follow buttons and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. These ratings help our grassroots podcast to become more visible to more people so we can include more stories. Written reviews are like stars on steroids. If you're so moved, please write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We are just getting started. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, please email us at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Tell us your stories. We'd like to thank our editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. <laughs>